Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy Easter. Uh, welcome again. Uh, hopefully you've been welcomed already to the, uh, our celebration of the greatest event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, I know most of you believe the truth, the reality of the resurrection, and some of you will leave even more convinced of it today. Uh, perhaps so not everyone, right? Um, and certainly we all have people in our lives who are uh, skeptical about faith and skeptical about, about God, skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I want you to take a, just a short peek with me into the intro for the series that we're going to begin next week. We're calling it A Word to the Nuns. I'll explain that in just a minute. you to explore with us how the Bible uh, challenges those who, um, who reject, maybe question, or in some cases simply don't, uh, well, don't care about the experience or the existence of God. All right, so bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your frustrations, uh, bring your friends who have those struggles as we explore this word to the nuns as more and more people when you ask them about their faith or their affiliation or what they believe, they just check the nun box. And so we're going to talk about that uh, beginning next Sunday. Now the vibe of Easter right, is so different than the mood that we exited with last week. Last week we left with Jesus on the cross. Today we get to see him alive. Last week he was a sacrifice. <laughs> Today we get to see him as a victor. Turn to Mark chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, open up that Bible, maybe a Bible app on your phone. If you reach in front of you, that chair in front of you, there's a Bible. Um, turn to Mark chapter 15. In those Bibles, it's page 1010 for Mark chapter 15. Okay. Now, we left off last week in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, with the, the words of the soldier. Remember the centurion who looked up as Jesus died and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Okay? But he was not the only one watching. Okay? We know from John chapter 19 that the disciple John was actually at the cross along with the mother of Jesus and some other followers. Remember when, um, when, we, when we met them in the courtyard when Jesus was being tried in the garden, they all scattered. Okay? But as we come upon that scene on Calvary, on, on Golgotha, as we watch the cross, the followers are around, some of them close by, some of them a little bit more distant, but they've gathered to watch what is actually happening. So if you're in Mark 15, pick up with me in verse 40. It says, some women were watching from a distance. 
Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who'd come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So they're watching Jesus. He's died. He's on the cross. Now we know that the Romans, um, they didn't care about the body of Jesus hanging there on the cross after he died. In fact, sometimes they like it when a body would stay up there because it just gave more of a deterrent. Don't commit these crimes or this might be you. (laughs) And so the fact that that body was there, and in some cases where it might start to decay, in other cases where maybe the birds might start to feed on that, the Romans didn't care and sometimes, again, even liked it. But the Jews, well, they weren't the same way in that way. And certainly Jesus' followers didn't want that. Okay, so there were Jewish laws in play here. And the upcoming Sabbath that was literally about to begin or happen in just a few hours after Jesus died was going to take place. Remember when we left with Jesus dying, it said it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the Sabbath would begin at sundown, so just a few hours away. The Sabbath was sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday. And so there was proper etiquette that needed to be followed for the Jewish people here. And so his body needed to come down. But there was a risk in someone asking for the body of Jesus. Okay? The primary risk being you want to associate yourself with this person who has just been tried and convicted and crucified. It, it would have some danger. So you have to appreciate a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea that we're going to meet here in Mark chapter 15. He was willing to take a risk by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus so they could have it, so they could bury it properly. But you have to realize that he, he was taking an even bigger risk because he was a member of the Jewish council. Remember the Jewish council that tried Jesus? <laughs> that found him guilty, that handed him over to Pilate to have him crucified, that Jewish council. Now, we don't know while the trial of Jesus was taking place whether he was a spectator or whether he was a participant. But we do find that he was under deep conviction. Look down at verse 42. It says it was preparation day. So that's that's the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Okay, that's, that's um, cryptic scripture language, if you will. I mean, it, it has meaning. When it says that someone was waiting for the kingdom of God, that meant that they were sensitive to God, that they were looking or waiting for the Messiah. So that describes Joseph, and it says that he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, the one who made that statement at the cross, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
Now, I've tried to um, stay away a bit from all of the different gospel accounts. Uh, there's so much and so many, and, and another time maybe we just unroll all of those and, and get the whole picture. But I do want to point out that in John chapter 19, okay, there was another member of the council, the Jewish council, who Jesus had interacted with and affected earlier by the name of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was also there after Jesus' death, and it says he helped take care of Jesus' body as well. But it was all done in a hurry because it had to be accomplished before sunset on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath, which again ran sundown to sundown. So, so Friday ended, and Saturday was this day of waiting. Not that they were necessarily expecting something to happen, but they felt like the task of burying and caring for and honoring Jesus was incomplete. And yet by the end of the Sabbath, since it was sundown to sundown, it was dark again. And so they couldn't do anything. So Saturday goes through. Saturday night happens. And then Sunday morning came. And, and these women who had been watching Jesus die, who'd watched what happened to his body, they wanted to finish doing things right. They wanted to anoint Jesus' body with the proper spices for burial to further honor him appropriately. They'd wanted to do it, I'm sure, on Friday. That would have been the best, but time didn't allow. So I think as early as the sun would allow. Okay, When sunup came on Sunday... We meet the women, and they're on their way to complete the task. Now, they knew what they wanted to do, but they weren't sure how they were going to accomplish it. Okay? If you're in Mark, I'm sorry, yeah, in Mark 15, flip over to Mark 16, pick up with me in verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was over, when Saturday was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Okay? Now, you understand they're not looking for a resurrected Jesus, right? They're not tracking with everything that Jesus had said. Five times he told them, I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise again. And yet they're going to anoint a body that had been crucified and was dead and put into a tomb. It says very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? Again, we know what we want to do. Not sure how we're going to do it. Now, if Joseph of Arimathea, being a member of the Jewish council, if he was a surprise, these women and their actions, that wasn't a surprise. I mean, they were devoted followers of Jesus. Each of them had their own story about how Jesus had changed their lives and, and now their love for him. I mean, it was deep. And so their deep, their grief also was deep. I mean, they had lost their leader, their teacher. They had lost their friend. And while the Jews honored the Sabbath, the Romans could have cared less about the Sabbath. It, it had nothing to do with them. So while Jesus' followers were resting on Sabbath, while they were honoring the Sabbath, Matthew tells us that some things happen actually at the tomb that makes this whole scene much more complex. I'll put it on the screen for you. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. 
It says the next day, the one after preparation day, so on Saturday, the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Okay? Like, I, I can't read that without stopping at that spot. How many times did these religious leaders try to trip Jesus up? How many times did they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, doing this, doing that? And so while Jesus' followers are honoring the custom of the Sabbath, the religious leaders are breaking the Sabbath. And they go to Pilate and they ask for his body. It's, uh, or they ask for, for this request. I'm sorry, verse 63. Sir, they said, so them talking to Pilate, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Okay? Now, I don't want to keep interrupting the text, but you just got to think through this, right? I mean, all of his followers, all they can think about is Jesus is dead. But his enemies, they heard his words, and they're worried about the fact that he, he's not going to be there. And so they begin to explain. So give the order, they said to Pilate, for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. And tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said, take a guard. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went. The Jewish leaders and the soldiers went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, Matthew goes on to tell us in chapter 28 what happens early on Sunday. Before these women from Mark chapter 16 actually arrive at the tomb. Remember, we left Mark. They're, they're going to the tomb. All this happened in the meantime. And then Matthew tells us what happens before they get there. Verse 1, Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Okay, So think passed out, <laughs> fainted, probably a light version of, of that, But hang on with me, because all that's happening while these women are on their way. And so they arrive at the tomb in Mark 16. If you're still there, look at, with me at, at verses 4 through 8. It says, But when they looked up and arrived at the tomb, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. <laughs> Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay. Can you say hope? 
can you see in this passage hope? I mean, many of us who follow Jesus have the hope of not only seeing him one day, but also seeing those that we have loved in this life when we too die and enter into eternity. And surely all of us have wished at some point or many points that we could see someone again that we loved during this short lifetime. Like I would, I would love to see my grandmother again. Selfishly, I just love to eat anything that she made. She was the best cook I've ever known, right? And I would love to see my dad again and my former mother-in-law who both died young when our kids were just infants, toddlers, young kids. I mean, I would love for my dad and for Kathy, I would love for them to see these kids that have grown up and what they look like as adults. I mean, I would love to, to meet Karen's parents and her grandparents, these people that are so alive through all the stories that I hear, but I never have actually got to meet. And I would give a lot of different things just to, just to have some more time with Christopher, right? This past week, like we lost a precious aunt. One of our families lost a brother. Another lost a sister. Another lost a young husband. One of our small group members this week was sharing um, stories about a mother who was also a grandmother and her husband who was a father and was also a grandfather. And, and that, that song, One More Day by Diamond Rio, just plays sometimes in my head every single day because we, we wish that we could see people now. But for followers of Jesus... That hope is still alive. And these women came to the tomb and the angel told them that Jesus was alive and not only that he was alive, but that they would see him again. Their greatest longing at that moment was about to be fulfilled. And wow, how quickly Jesus transforms a hopeless end into what would be for them and for us an endless hope. They would move from grief to shock and bewilderment to fear. And ultimately, these women would move into hope. Okay? And it's not just a feel-good story. It's a reality. Now, if I had time this morning, I would love to take you through all of the different passages that tell us who Jesus saw after he rose from the dead and how their interactions played out. I think it's a, um, a key element in the scripture and it's certainly important when we think about the, the factual reality of Jesus' resurrection. When we think about the history of Jesus' life and the validation of it, um, especially these appearances after the resurrection and then the church, in writing about that, Luke wrote these things in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He said, after his suffering, now he's talking about Jesus, he said that Jesus presented himself to them, meaning his followers, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom 
of God. Now, I've put in your outline notes those scriptures that deal with these post-resurrection, after-resurrection appearances from Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24 and John chapters 20 and 21, and, and then the first chapter in the book of Acts and Paul's synopsis of it all in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning on that first Sunday for the next 40 days, almost for six full weeks, Jesus appeared to these women. And then he appeared to Peter and John. He appeared to two disciples or two followers on the road to Emmaus. Remember how he appeared to all of the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there? And he doubted that's how he got his nickname? And then later he appeared to all the disciples and Thomas was there. It says at one point he appeared to over 500 people at one time. He appeared to them close to the tomb. He appeared to them in a closed room. He appeared to them on a mountain. He appeared to them by the Sea of Galilee. It feels like it ought to be a bit of a Dr. Seuss rhyme put together for all the places that he appeared, right? Paul, um, well, all of the Gospels tell us that, that his resurrection was announced by angels in each of the four Gospels we read. Paul writes a summary of the Gospel and then a summary of the people that Jesus appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 3. Let me put it up there for you. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared then to Cephas. That's an, another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, meaning, check it out. <laughs> Ask them, Paul was saying as he was writing. They were there, they saw him, they touched him, they watched him. Then he says, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul talking about himself, he says, he appeared to me as to one abnormally Born. One psychologist said this, he said, over 500 people having the same hallucination would be more of a miracle than the resurrection itself. I mean, the false witnesses at Jesus' trial couldn't even get their story straight. Two of them couldn't agree. But 500 who all agreed on the same story, this is what happened to us? And then Jesus commissioned his followers and all that would come after them, including you and I, to go into all the world and make disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and to be his witnesses in Acts chapter 1. And they did. I mean, Jesus transformed their lives and then they in turn transformed the world when they took his message everywhere. And here we are today. Both the recipients of the transformed message and also the ones who've been entrusted to pass it on from here. And that's a lot of responsibility. One that deserves something other than a pious dropping by of the tomb once every year and looking in to see that indeed it's still empty. Faith isn't sparked by a callous nor a casual glance Jesus' way. Okay? Lives aren't transformed by simply acknowledging the fact of the resurrection. 
the message um, doesn't endure through the ages by just declaring a holiday on a calendar, okay? Um, or by becoming some faded memory that maybe we put in a scrapbook and once a year on Easter, we open it up and take a look and admire that Jesus is alive. Listen. The ending of Jesus' story of the resurrection that we read, it requires or forces us to enter the story. If we understand anything from Scripture, we understand like we are the next chapter in it all. And so we ask the question, does the story die with us? Will we obey and follow Jesus like those disciples? It begs an answer to the question that we have been asking for three months through this whole series. Who do you say Jesus is? Make no mistake, the, the resurrection, it is, it is the fulcrum of our faith. Okay? It's the axis, the center, the core, the pivot point of faith for a Christian. Yet we're not simply asked to believe in a doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. Okay? We're asked to meet Jesus, <laughs> this person that has been raised from the dead. Lloyd Ogilvie says this, he says, the most powerful historical proof of the resurrection is the resurrected disciples. Think about those that scattered in fear. Think about these dull, defeated people who became fearless. They became adventuresome leaders, these cowards, which, by the way, we would likely have been too. <laughs> but they became courageous. The timid became triumphant. And those who seemed to be inept were actually, through God's power, able to accomplish the impossible. I mean, the real power of the resurrection, it wasn't just demonstrated 2,000 years ago, but it's being demonstrated before our eyes in the lives of people who are following Jesus. People like you and I who refuse to give in to the darkness. And we're walking in the light of the resurrection. We are proof, living proof every day that God in the flesh was victorious over the grave, that there's power that came alive in that resurrection. When people see your life change, when they see that you have victory over past sin in your life, when people see us rise to a newness of life, when they see the old man die inside of us and a new man start living, it's proof to them that Jesus came out of the grave and that through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, he is alive in you and alive in me as transformation continues to take place. Because listen, if you can get up out of the grave of sin, like if you can rise to the newness of life, if you can change, there had to be a resurrection. And the power of God is alive in you and me. And listen, okay, my friends, you can change. Okay? 
Whatever that voice inside of your head tells you, you can change and you can do it today. Maybe you need a new start. God would give you that today. Maybe you just need a new opportunity to live differently under the power of God, and he would give that to you today. The scriptures tell us God's mercies are new every morning. They're new every day, including this day. So would you meet him today? I mean, it's all been leading up to introducing this power alive through the resurrection. Would you meet him anew today? Don't miss the opportunity for new life. Don't miss the chance at another chance at life because God is knocking at the door of your heart. Invite him in. Open that door. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and I'm going to invite you today, today to give your life to Jesus, today to start a new life. I'm just going to stand back there by the sound booth during this song a little bit after the service. I'd love to talk to you today about the new life that Jesus answered. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray together. Jesus, many of us have learned to call you Lord. We embrace you as our Savior because of our sin that needed to be taken care of. We embrace you as our Lord because we know you created us, you know us best, you have purposed our life and we want to step into that purpose and walk through this life the way you've planned, the way you destined us to live because you created us that way. And it only happens through your mercy through your grace, through the new life you offered us and that you're offering us today. So we claim that new life, whether it's for the first time or for a new day and so many in a row, that we might live in your power in a way that honors you and that brings your best for our lives. Meet us here, Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name.